Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic papal tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. If you ever was a devil bought that in harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. I don't dream a lot. Well, I, I do dream just as much as anyone else, but uh, I don't tend to remember my dreams. Usually all I can recall of them is like a few fleeting images or kind of a general sort of vibe. It's rare that I can actually remember like uh, a story arc as much as dreams ever have coherent stories. But some dreams have stood out enough that they've stuck with me over many years, over my entire life in some cases. I'm sure it will surprise no one to learn that I often felt very lonely and outcast when I was young. I did have a close group of friends, and I loved them all very much, but I felt like I was kind of kept around as a court jester, you know? Like, they didn't want me around for me, they just wanted me around because I was entertaining. Now I actually don't think that's the case. I think most of my friends really did genuinely like me, but that was the way I felt about it in those days. Anyway, one of the dreams that has stuck with me for years is one I had, uh, I don't know when exactly, I, th I think it was in my early 30s. Your 30s are nice because you begin to stop caring so much what other people think of you, and you become much more authentic in yourself. Anyway, in this dream, I walked into the cafeteria of my high school, which was all set up for a play. I should explain that my high school sucked really bad and there was no actual theater for the theater department. We had this stage in the cafeteria, and whenever we did a performance, we just had to like set the cafeteria up like a theater house, like putting up folding chairs and stuff. It was ridiculous. But I walked into this space that was set up for a theater performance, and I sat in one of the seats, and I looked to my left, and across the aisle was this girl, 15 or 16 years old, wearing a blue and purple tie-dyed Dr. Seuss shirt, it was the same shirt I wore often when I was that age. And the more I looked at this girl, the more I realized that she was me. It was me as a teenager. I switched seats so I could sit right next to her and I said to her, Hey, I just wanted you to know that you're doing great. You're doing everything you should be doing and you're doing it in the way you should be doing it and everything turns out okay. You're gonna get to where you wanna go and all you have to do is keep going. And this girl looked at me, and I could tell she didn't know who I was, but something about me struck her as familiar. And then she asked me for a hug, and I gave it to her like a nice, long hug. And I really tried to make her feel all the love that I felt for her. Because even though she didn't know me, I knew her. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Live on the air right now, sir. Uh, that's what the story, kid. Anybody can come. Some shattered Hear him in night. Party on, on men. More updates. Damn the man. Fred Save Patrick the empire.
There's a lot of pointless and stupid talk about generations. Labels for generations, names for generations, generational identities, whatever. I think all this stuff is pretty arbitrary and dumb and probably serves some sinister social control political purpose of dividing us so we're easier to subjugate. It's all dumb. But one of the debates about generations that's still unsettled is where the cutoff lies between Generation X and Millennials. And you guys, a couple weeks ago, while I was stoned, I think I figured it out. The true cutoff between Gen X and Millennial is not a date. It's not a year you were born in. It's a cultural event that separates us. If you identify more with the film The Breakfast Club, you're Gen X. If you identify more with Empire Records, you're a millennial. What's with you today? What's with today today? I love Empire Records. I don't know a whole lot of people my age who don't love that movie, even if you acknowledge that it's like saccharine and goofy, it is. But there's still something that's just really, really sweet and fun about it. Joe, I can categorically say that you are not a bigger banana head. As much as kids these days love the 90s, what really blows my mind is that I don't see young people on social media celebrating Empire Records. I don't even think they know it exists. Not even the kids who have like followings on social media because they reenact the 90s. Yes, that is a thing. There are people on social media who were not alive in the 80s or 90s whose entire aesthetic is one of those decades. Their bedrooms are all tricked out like Zach Morris's room, or they only game on vintage 90s game systems, they wear clothes and style their hair as if they're in the decade of their focus. It's amazing. And I'm not knocking, when I was a teenager, I did something similar. My grandma was an antiques dealer, so she could score really great deals on cool vintage stuff, and she got me this pink, nubby-textured clickbed from the early 40s. A clickbed, if you don't know, is kind of a Western version of a futon. And I used that convertible pink sofa bed as my bed every night. Like, that was where I slept, on this vintage 40s sofa. And I tricked out my room like it was the living space in an Atomic Age home. Like, I'm sure you've probably noticed, dear listener, my obsession with the futurism of the 20th century. I had this cool two-tiered coffee table from the 50s and all these... Uh, not lava lamps, because that was 60s stuff, but the version they had before they put the blobby goop in lava lamps, so when you plugged it in, the light would heat up, and they would make these spinning tornadoes of glitter. I had a little portable record player and a folding case, and I listened to ancient vinyl from the 30s through the 50s. You can see where the aesthetic from this podcast has its roots. Anyway, I digress. The point is, there are kids whose entire thing online is to live their lives as if it's the 90s, and yet I have never once seen any of those kids post anything about Empire Records. And I think it's because Empire Records will only make sense to you if you were actually a young person in the 90s. A Sinead O'Rebellion. <laughs> shock me, shock me, shock me with that deviant behavior. That movie, of course, was a fantasy, like all fiction is, but it reflected the reality of living during that time so incredibly well. Reaganomics was already ravaging the economy and killing the middle class, and education was already something that was only going to be accessible to the wealthy or to people who could land a scholarship, or of course, to people who were willing to take on massive debt in order to get an education. Big businesses were buying up small local businesses and homogenizing everything under carefully controlled corporate brands. Welcome to Music Town. May I service you? 
Young people were struggling to discern any future for themselves and desperately trying not to make their jobs into their whole identities. We were struggling really hard with depression, like all of us. Everyone was depressed. I tried to kill myself with a Lady Bic. A pink plastic razor with daisies on it and a moisturizing strip. The only people who actually enjoyed their lives were the ones who were stoned all the time. <laughs> I love you, Eddie. <laughs> and the music was fucking dope. So if there's any meaningful division between these two species of middle-aged people, or soon-to-be middle-aged people, that's where I think the real dividing line lies. Do you identify more with The Breakfast Club, which shows the problems of youth before Republican economic policies gutted the middle class, or with Empire Records, which portrays an entirely different set of problems for young people? I love Empire Records so much, my friends and I used to watch it together all the time. Seriously, one of the main things we do when we got together to hang out was like, we would just order pizza and watch Empire Records, even though we had all seen it like zillions of times before. My friends and I still quote this movie to each other constantly and text each other on April 8th to wish one another a happy Rex Manning day, like we're still so into it. Friggin' Rex Manning day. I always had such great memories of this film. It just felt like a place of comfort to me. And when I was 29, 30 years old, I started working at a used bookstore that felt very much the way Empire Records felt. This was right in the middle of my divorce, which, as anyone who's ever been divorced will tell you, it's a tough thing to go through. Even if you know it's the right decision and you're the one who's instigating it, divorce is still a lot. Uh, side note, I don't want to discourage anyone from getting a divorce either. As hard as it was, my divorce was still one of the best things that's ever happened to me, and I think it was one of the best things that's happened to my ex-husband, too. When I left him, he finally found the motivation to stop drinking and turn his life around, and from what our mutual friends tell me, he's a lot happier and healthier now and has some really nice relationships with other women, and I'm so glad that he also ended up happy because he's a really good person and he deserves happiness. Anyway, God, I'm on a lot of digressions this episode. Sorry, guys. Blame it on my malfunctioning butthole. So I started working at this used bookstore during my divorce, and it reminded me so much of Empire Records, and it really became my happy place, which was a new experience for me, enjoying going to work. The first half-price books I worked at was smaller and suburban and fun, but not that exciting. But then I transferred to one that was in Seattle on Roosevelt Avenue. It closed down years ago, but God, it was the coolest fucking bookstore in the whole city. It was in an industrial warehouse, like this old grungy brick warehouse, just like the music store in Empire Records. It was two stories with a weird staircase. It was staffed by a motley crew of the most unusual people you'd ever hope to meet. Since we bought and sold used books and like other entertainment media, DVDs, records, you know, we found a lot of weird random shit. Like people would forget they'd stuck strange mementos of their lives inside books for safekeeping and then forgot about those mementos. So when they sold us these books, we'd often find these bizarre treasures inside them. Ticket stubs, postcards, handwritten notes, naked pictures, lots and lots of naked pictures. Everything you can imagine. When we noticed these items during a buy, we'd return them to the owner if they wanted them, but often they just told us to throw them away. We did not throw them away. We kept them all. And frequently, we wouldn't find these things inside the books or inside the sleeves of records until after the customer had left, so they'd just fall out later. And the walls of this store were just papered with the detritus of all these strangers' lives. It gave the store a really unique atmosphere. Imagine a warehouse full of books with its walls absolutely covered from floor to ceiling with the forgotten mementos of thousands of people's lives. 
there was something about that place that was just so magical. I felt connected to the world when I was there with a depth and an intimacy that I've seldom felt at any other point in my life. And I often think about what happened to all those scraps of strangers' lives when the store was finally closed down. Where did it all go? I guess maybe to the same place dreams go when the images and the stories fade and you forget about them. Tim Batson, editor-in-chief of Mid-Level Management Magazine. Is that correct? Literary magazine. Liter- excuse me. Literary. M- mid-level magazine. management literary magazine. <laughs> that's, that's the official title. Mid-level mag for short. Half-price books didn't just give me a place to feel normal and connected while I was going through my divorce. It's also how I met one of my closest friends. Tim Batson was the assistant manager who first hired me at HPB, and we became buds, which eventually deepened into a lasting friendship and one of the most important relationships of my life. Tim invited me to join the writer's group he'd been running for some time. We met at Cooper's Ale House out on Lake City Way, and Tim and I bonded further over our shared love for literature. He was very supportive back then of my goal of turning fiction into my full-time profession, and he's still my greatest cheerleader and emotional support when it comes to the work I do today. And today, he has turned his passion for literature into a very cool new endeavor, which I'm super excited about. Tim is the editor-in-chief of Mid-Level Management Literary Magazine, which explores the intersection of work life and art through poetry and prose. You're on, what, fourth issue, fifth issue? What's your, how many issues do you have now? Uh, yeah, we're, we're open for submissions on our fourth issue currently. We, uh, we uh, I'll say that in the editorial, I, I have published three, three issues last year or, or between last year and this year, throwing a lot of stuff out there, casting a wide net, seeing sort of what I catch back uh, like creatively, idea-wise, and, and uh, you know, that's the, like the ADD, ADHD brain of mine that wants to like, oh, <laughs> squirrel here, there, run around, this idea, that idea see which one works so yeah yeah well that's i mean that's kind of the best way to find your niche i think i and i say niche i don't care people out there who want me to say niche go fuck yourselves (laughs) go feast yourselves (laughs) yes yes please i grew up in idaho it's a niche yeah (laughs) i think that's the best way to do it though just try a lot of shit see what sticks because whatever works for you is always going to be different from what has worked for somebody else you know yeah that that makes complete sense. So yeah, uh, I guess I'll do a, a a brief sort of introduction as to the conceit, the concept, and like what I wanted to achieve and still want to achieve out of it. So I'd had a Twitter account forever, and then um, I'd never really used it at all. Like I I uh, would would post on there occasionally, and then uh, mostly it was like young man's blues kind of a thing where I'm like complaining about the world and how unfair everything is. And, and some of my early tweets, which I have thankfully deleted were, were very self-indulgent and whiny and, and totally like embarrassing to me as like a mature adult. Now (laughs) you would, you turned me on to like literary Twitter and I I started exploring on there and seeing stuff. And then, uh, I mean, I can't remember exactly how how I did it, but you you already talked with uh, uh, M.M. Kerrigan from t- uh, Taco Bell Quarterly, and I came ac- across Taco Bell Quarterly, and I was like, oh, this is totally wild, and and uh, they had open submissions. I, w- I was looking at it, and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I could write something, and I, I wrote and submitted, got, got rejected, which is, uh, you know, part of the game, but... Uh, I started like seeing the connections there within the the literary community 
on Twitter and just something clicked. I was like, oh, wait, like I could do this. I, I could create my own, you know, uh, avenue or venue or, or, or space for people to work with ideas that I have uh, in a way where, um, you know, what I don't feel like I can uh, creatively express, others can, but I can help kind of curate it or help guide it in a particular way. And it tied directly with like my, my professional background, which is, uh, you know, management. I've been, I've been a manager or supervisor or, you know, some sort of project manager for close to 20 years. That's what I think is so interesting about mid-level management, the magazine, um, because it's it's all things that people write about work life, which is not explored very often, especially in literary fiction. Literary fiction tends to be... Uh, I, I read a really interesting article, and I wish I could remember off the top of my head. I'm going to edit it later and drop in who authored this article, but it was in LitHub. That LitHub article, by the way, is called, If They Want to Be Published, Literary Writers Can't Be Honest About Money, and it was written by Naomi Kanakia. And it was about how um, if literary fiction wants to survive, basically, if it wants to remain relevant, it needs to pull its head out of its ass and stop being written entirely by people who come from like privileged backgrounds where they don't have to work because it shows in the sort of... Uh, in the sort of genre conventions of existing literary fiction, how little the people who tend to write it, or at least the people who get attention for writing it, have worked in their lives. Because there's just, there's like no work life in the characters in most of these stories and novels. It's, you know, they're, it's some novelist as a main character who's off writing his next book or whatever, you know, and, and it doesn't really give much for anybody to attach to who actually experiences a daily commute and sitting in a cubicle or, you know, doing whatever. So um, that's what I think is so interesting and so important about the magazine you founded is that it's, it encourages people to write about their experiences in a work environment, which is so rare in, in that genre. Yeah. Uh, I, I completely, uh, completely agree uh, with that assessment. Like literary fiction is, has maybe a loose definition very quickly become fantasy. Like these, these are not achievable things. These, are these characters their their world that they exist in is not based on reality you know like the the you know i'm gonna i'm writing my next novel like writing novels is hard work it's it's takes talent i'm i'm a writer i know i know the the, the work behind it but like you know uh the industry or the the sort of the, the mechanisms all the working parts around that as a genre like seemed so disconnected from reality and the experiences of, of like real people and uh, yeah, uh, I, I've been so impressed and uh, humbled by the response that people have had to the magazine when I started it. Like you and I were talking when when I first came up with the idea, and I was like, I, I, I want to do a magazine as like as a character, but as like a real thing. It's going to be absurd. It's going to be very serious at the same time because. I have a fairly absurdist gallows based humor. The, the, the memes I post on Twitter and on Instagram, my, my Monday morning writing prompts, they're all designed to be like, what, <laughs> what is this guy doing? Like we all feel this on the inside, you know, I mean, uh, work sucks. You don't work sucks. You don't. It's the job. Like nobody, nobody at the top in any of these companies. And it's clearly evident. You see it all the time. Nobody knows what's going on. There's a, f there's a few smart people that know how to game the industries or the, or the way that like uh, corporate structures are set up and, and to their benefit, you know, for, for al almost always ill, uh, very rarely for good, but everybody's like, well, 
I have my MBA. I have this. I know what I'm talking about, but I've never worked a cash register in my entire life. So these decisions I'm making are not based on reality. I, I don't have any idea what the impact of my decision will do to a person who is like then using my service or my product. Zero clue. And for years, like uh, as a writer, I've tried to uh, explore my own experiences with work through through my poetry and fiction. A lot of it was cathartic. A lot of it was uh, uh, helpful in processing my experience. Uh, uh, but I didn't know if I was taking advantage of my professional experience in any way artistically. I'd, I I've have had desires to take my experience and apply it some way because careers don't exist. Jobs change all the time. What can I do to sort of like keep these skills relevant or valid in the forefront of my mind? Like despite my relationship with work, and I think despite a lot of people's relationship with work, they still see value in it. They still see their experiences as touchstones to their identity. And it really is like part of me really identifies like I'm a manager. If you want to be depressed, like if you're a depressed person, and you're like, hey, you know what? I want to get more depressed. Just hang out on LinkedIn. Go hang out on Indeed. Go hang out on Glassdoor. It's this distillation of like everything you hate about work <laughs> put to this cartoonish level of like, you know, a meat market. I hate LinkedIn so much. It's so stupid. It, it, like, I'm sure it's useful in some capacities, but I just hate it. And I just, I remember when I first moved to the island, I joined this local writers group. It was not a good fit for me, but there was this one woman in it who kept like pressuring me to get on LinkedIn. And I was like, why? I am, I'm a, I'm a novelist. Like, how is LinkedIn going to help me? And she's like, that's where people make business connections. I was like, not in publishing, they don't. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, I, it was uh, being harassed weekly about LinkedIn by this one particular person is one of my least favorite memories of the past decade. <laughs> <laughs> I, and you know, like I, I've gotten jobs through LinkedIn. I've gotten interviews through LinkedIn and, and like Indeed and Glassdoor. And but like people, people love it, and it's so self-congratulatory. It's so like, look at us. We're we're shifting paradigms, synergistic. I hate that. I hate like like business jargon that means nothing. Executive speak. It drives me nuts. We're shifting paradigms. No, you're not. You don't even know what a paradigm is. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Having spent all that time on on LinkedIn and subtly like planting the seed, like I need to take this down some way. I need to like give people because it's like there's this level of desperation in these posts. Like if I write the right LinkedIn post, somebody's going to notice it and they're going to give me a job. And it's like, no, they're not. It's all robots. It's all, you know, like Amazon pre-screening. It's all like no one's connected. Nobody knows anything. Everyone's out there like talking into a mirror and and you get a lot of like congratulations that's so great and like i i don't know it, it's it's very disturbing in, in so many ways i mean i still have to use it like my day job like I, i'm not on there that much anymore but for practical purposes i always keep i always keep it up uh uh, I have, I have because I'm a glutton for punishment. I have recently created a LinkedIn profile for the magazine. Perfect, uh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it makes sense. Like the magazine is being this entity of 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 a business. It is a literary magazine, but it is also a business, and it thinks like a business, and it operates like it, and it rewards its employees like that with you know decaf coffee and plain donuts. 
there's pizza parties on Fridays and, you know, we don't give you a raise. We give you uh, a reason to stay vested in your work. You know, this is added value. Mid-level mag is, uh, uh, such a, such a great place to work. And every, everyone's very happy, especially with like silent reading hour, mandatory silent reading hour every day. You have to read for an hour. Yeah, you guys go go follow Mid Level Mag on Twitter. It is really funny. Like Tim does some clever some clever memes for a for a gentleman in his forties. He's got he's got some dank meme skills. I must say, <laughs> I, I, I have I was an early adopter of the internet, like you. And when <laughs> I remember when the internet was cool and you could you could do all this stuff pre algorithm pre pre everything. Uh, the seed was planted early and it, it has maintained some strength over the years. So I have to say, like, I know this is going to make us both sound so fucking old. So I'm sorry for what I'm about to do to both of us. But like, kids these days don't understand how fucking cool the internet was like back in the early 2000s. God, it was fun. Yeah, it was so fun. <laughs> you could do anything you wanted. And every every new website was a rabbit hole of insanity. And you just never knew what you were going to find. And now it's just fucking boring it's just social media dumb dummy dumbs <laughs> it, it's hard like it's hard to find cool interesting stuff on the internet nowadays just there's a few websites that i still like uh visit on, on occasion and some of some of those like formative early like comedic websites uh so there's this guy and i think it's richard metz metzger i i could be wrong about pronouncing his name um but he was like the founder and editor-in-chief of disinformation this was an early early 2000s late 90s they had like a tv show and a website and it was all like i don't know not necessarily conspiracy theory stuff but it was like challenging norms of like uh information broadcasting like your standard media has a particular bent we're going to show you another side so I think some of the children of disinformation are things like Vice uh, Media or Vulture or things like that, like many, many steps removed. But he, after uh, disinformation closed, uh, he went on to open up and still, I still think he runs it, uh, but it's called DangerousMinds.net. One of my abs absolute, absolute favorite websites, just because of the culture, the art, like everything's a little bit occult, a little bit esoteric, a little bit you know, groovy, a little bit hippie. And, uh, uh, that's me. I'm, I'm a little bit of all those things. And it's like, Oh, I discovered so much music, so many cool, interesting films and books from, from that, uh, from that website. Like, and I'm so glad that it's still around because like, it's hard to find spaces like that. Just, just cool things that like, you know, uh, was like an extension of me working in the bookstore. It was like, okay, there's somebody else that has, infinitely better taste and, and ability to search for this stuff than I do. And I'm going to, you know, leech as much of this as I can and sort of build it into my own like ability to find and like identify with like awesome art, awesome culture. Yeah, it's great. I love Dangerous Minds too. It's a good one. Here's what, okay. Everybody keeps telling me that you got to go to Discord if you want to like find the fun parts of the internet now. But like, I hate Discord because it is discordant. It, it's, it's, you're in one room or you can go to different channels but everyone's just talking at once. It's just texts flying back and forth. You can't tell who's replying to what. You can't follow the thread of a conversation. You can't participate. All you can do is just scream into the void. And like, maybe that's maybe that's what young people enjoy doing nowadays. But uh, I find it fucking boring and stupid. So <laughs> I'm not doing that. I mean, it, it's just chat rooms. It's just a chat room. 
And I, I, I did that with AOL and I, you know, when I was a teenager, have I ever told you the story of how uh, uh, I got uh, our internet, our AOL subscription canceled because of uh, chat room violations? I called no. their, their helpline, <laughs> pretended to be my dad. I was like 13 at the time. And I was like, oh, yes, this was my son that did this. <laughs> I, I like artificially like deepened my voice onto the phone. I'm sure they could tell it was some teenager. And the, the... Oh my God. No, I've never heard this story. Okay. So <laughs> as, as a young, uh, uh, a super elder millennial or very, very uh, late stage Gen Xer, um, I can't decide which one I quite fall into or which I identify with, but. Yeah, we were both born in 1980. So we're right in the gap between the two. We're... Right there. Um, and uh, when my my parents, for good or ill, got us a PC computer and like I, I lost my mind. The Internet was the greatest <laughs> thing for me. It was like, Internet. Yeah. I know, yeah. Me too. When I first got it, I was like, ah, like a maniac. Yeah, <laughs> it was so like, great. Literally technology talking to people in real time across the world. It, it, <laughs> Like this massive leap in our technological like advancement as a society. You've talked about that before, but yeah. So so chat rooms were big thing, very very big thing, and so everybody would be in there doing ASL ASL, and that stands for you young kids, uh, age, sex, location. So yeah, whatever. However that developed, that was like the identifier. So you could like see, are you talking to a teenager? Are you talking to uh, uh, um, uh, a boy or girl, or uh, you know, uh, in what part of the world? And everybody would do this and they chat room started to like separate into their own interests and whatnot. And then, and, uh, uh, AOL had like different, like little rooms that you could do. And, uh, I can't remember where I was at. It was just some, some random chat room. And I think I was just, you know, goofing off at 13 years old, being crazy, said something probably pretty incendiary. And then like, there was some sort of ban that happened and they're like, uh, uh, we're kicking you out. Like you violated uh, these rules. Your account's been suspended, all this stuff. And I'm like, uh, oh crap. <laughs> and so I, uh, you know, of the like 50,000 AOL CD-ROMs that you got in the mail, or did they ever do them on like three and a half inch floppies? I don't think so. I only remember the discs. Maybe it was just, yeah. Cause I think we had a compact computer. We, we didn't have a gateway. I was a little bit mad that we didn't have a gateway. For for whatever reason, my my friend David, his his family had gateway computers, and they seemed a little bit cooler, I guess. But like, I found a CD. There was like a eight hundred number on it, and I called, and I was like, "Well, this is the account," and like, we we got kicked off, and I'm wondering how that happened. What what was going on? And they're like, "Well, there was some uh, so, something happened in the chat room," and I was like, "Oh, that was my son. Uh, I'll have to talk to him about it." <laughs> Almost identical to this voice that I'm doing right now. And they're like, "Okay, we'll we'll restore it for you," and they didn't. They got it back on, and my parents never found out. No problems. Back on AOL. Back to harassing people in chat rooms at 13 years of age being a maniac it was so fun i loved it it was it was yeah it's nothing like it is now because now everything is just so regimented and like you got to be on whichever app it was just it was more free-flowing back then and you could kind of make make your website or your blog whatever you wanted it to be and for better or worse you know (laughs) so i had a couple of geocities uh um, i was not an angel fire user i used geocities for my free web hosting when i built my (laughs) my initial websites but yeah, like filled it with dancing baby gifts. Yeah, uh, you know, and then I think about like thinking about those early early days of of the internet. Like 
being able to be influenced in, I think, in this incredibly positive way uh, um, with, uh, you know, access to information. There's a part of me that still believes in the the promise of the, the early internet where it was a uniting information sharing repository, real time, real world library, essentially, like, like at your fingertips, every topic, every, every piece of information you could, you can, you know, find out anything like, and, and maybe that made us a little lazy, you know, having, having, uh, or, and entitled maybe a little bit where you didn't work maybe as hard to find things, but you would find things that you weren't otherwise exposed to. I know that it was incredibly formative in, in my development and, and, uh, worldview. And certainly it changed my, my trajectory and my like faith transition away from being, uh, a Mormon to, you know, um, an agnostic atheist. Yeah. As it relates to literature, like being able to find out stuff about authors, being able to find stuff out about like, uh, like, uh, uh, comics and art. Or just to get, like, get book recommendations, you know, like, I like this, what else will I like? And you've got a bunch of people on a forum being like, oh, you should try this book and this book and this book. It, it was huge for me for that. It, like, expanded my awareness of literature tremendously. Well, yeah. And, like, er- very early social media uh, um, things outside of, like, MySpace, but live journals. Do you ever have a live journal? Oh, boy, did I ever. Yeah, I oh, did. Oh, yeah. I, I, tr- <laughs> I, found, I found mine. I couldn't remember the, the address because they're still out there. They're still active. I know. I found my old one and read through it and I was like, oi. Yeah, <laughs> oh boy. It, it was like, ooh. Like somebody like kicked me in the gut when I read that. I was like, I, 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 you know, puberty hit me hard and I've never recovered. But man, there were points in my life where I was like, love me, world. Love me. Feel my pain. Love me. And it's, it's awful. It's awful. Just like, so I, thank, thankfully, I had people that were patient with me in my life that were like, Oh man, it's it's real rough out there. Like, keep your chin up, Tim. In whatever way that they would say that, that but oh, I feel like I mean that's that's kind of what being in your late teens and early twenties is about, though. You know, you go yeah, through that. Like, it, it really is that like explosion of passionate confusion where you're like, I don't know what's going on. I just know I don't like any of it. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, it was uh, uh, yeah, very very much there. And, and a lot of people, there's this, there's this great subreddit called like blunder years. If you've ever seen blunder years, it's very good. (laughs) And, and I love it. It's great. I think it's, I think the people that post on there are a little too hard on themselves. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's okay that you tried things out. It's okay that you, uh, maybe only had to do things once. Like, uh, there, I bought one time as a teenager, I bought, uh, like uh, a plains Indian style, like, like beaded necklace, you know, those like three lines of long beads. And I wore it once and that was enough. (laughs) It was like, you're not the person to wear this, Tim. Let's never do it. You know? And it was some carnival (laughs) Barker guys like, yeah, you'd look good in that kid. You'd look good in that. And he was like, here, give me like 10, 15 bucks. Like, yeah, I was an easy mark at the time, but like, yeah, yeah. Having, having those moments, in the early internet where you're, you're engaging in talking and expressing, you know, just the, the hormonal, uh, experiential, like wave after wave. And you don't know how to process it. Some people are really good at a, and, and they're very lucky to be able to handle it from a young age. Most of us, on the other hand, we have to, we have to flail into the void for, you know, 10, 15 years before we finally figure stuff out. 
I am so relieved for my nephew that he is, like, just naturally cool. Like, he seems to just have a natural grasp of, like, what's going to make him look like a dumbass and what's not. And he has, he's 15 now and he's been on social media for, like, a couple years and he's kept it nice and normal and respectable the entire time. And I'm like, God bless him, because if I had had Instagram when I was 13, 14, it would have been a nonstop shit show. Like, that's <laughs> so bad. But he's cool, you well, know? Like, he wears cool clothes, he treats people very nicely and respectfully, and he loves Tom Waits. Like, there's there's nothing else you can ask for for a cool internet persona. That, that's that's pretty cool. I, I'm, I feel like certainly younger kids and you know we're we're not old even though you know our bodies and our joints might say otherwise uh we're not but you know just even this short gap of t- of time like 20 years like we see people that have grown up like in a world where this is the norm where they have yeah. access to the world at any given time and they're able to uh um you know uh, distance themselves from it in this very healthy way where it's like, oh, that I understand this aspect of life and I don't have to engage in it. They're not, they're not conditioned. They're not, they're not like us where we sort of, and people older than us where it's sort of like the lab rat thing where we're at the, the cocaine dispenser and we can't <laughs> stop pressing the button. They're like, I don't know what's going on here. Like their baseline is like, okay, that's, that's a part of life, but it's not everything. Like I can go do other stuff. It's not like yeah. that feedback loop thankfully didn't get established in, in a lot younger kids. Like, so it gives me still a lot of hope that there's uh, um, the internet will get out of its like tantrum, you know, adolescent puberty phase and we can get into something a little bit more mature and, and, uh, 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 manageable for lack of a better phrase. Let's, let's, let's mid-level manage the internet y'all. Yes. Tim's always thinking about managing things. I've known him for, how long, I, have, I, how long have we known each other? Jesus. 2009 was when we met, right? Uh, was it that? Yeah. Early? Uh, man. So I, I was, no, I think it was earlier than that. Cause I first started managing like as a full on store manager in I think, was it after that? You were the assistant manager. So here's how we met. Tim hired me as a as a seasonal temp at one of the bookstores that he was assistant managing at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was 2009. It was the Christmas season of 2009 because um I got divorced the next well, I started my divorce process the next year. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I had just just turned 29 at the time and so I I was very Oh my god. Man. Whew. Yeah. We, so, uh, uh, yeah, we've known each other for 14 what, years. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I could have swore it was longer than that, but I don't know. It <laughs> probably feels a lot longer than that when you're friends with me. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Like, <laughs> well, I can, I can say the same thing. Like, and, and because, because, you know, I think that we're, we're kindred spirits and we do have this shared connection that I think, makes it feel a lot longer. So, uh, uh, yeah, Libby and I both grew up Mormon. She's talked about it a lot. I, I talk about it a fair amount and like, it's a very unique and distinct experience. Uh, uh, um, I can't remember the exact phrase, but we are a queer and peculiar people, people. Well, well, I, I'm a queer people. I don't know about you, though. but, <laughs> but yeah, I, no, no. a peculiar people. That's how Wallace Stegner put yes, it. Yes. A peculiar people, people, man, I'm, I'm having a, like, you'll, you'll edit that like out, right? Nine... <laughs> yeah, I will. Fancy 19th century speech for these people are fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and 
that's a cultural thing where the things that we identify with, like the, the, the secular culture, like hallmarks and markers are fairly universal. So I think that that's why it feels like our, our, our friendship and relationship is so much longer than it is just because there's this unspoken history that we just instantly identify with right away. It's like, Oh yeah, you, you're in on the joke too. Cause you know, you experienced it. <laughs> Yeah, it's the same in Mormon lore. See, like we were we were BFFs in the pre-existence, high fiving in the where where where's the pre-existence? It's not the celestial kingdom, is it? Where I think it's just I in like the like the the uh, spiritual soup, <laughs> just hanging out waiting. Nobody ever ironed that out. It's just wherever uh, high high into Kolob, <laughs> wherever God's kicking it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, we were I, I still need to make that that magazine. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. So for the, the ex-Mormon Mormon or, or just uh, very faithful people, uh, I have an idea. I'm going to explore it. It's going to relate to uh, Kolob. Kolob, for those who don't know, is in Mormon theology, the planet where God lives. Yeah. It, yeah. What a cool name, Kolob. <laughs> Kolob, it is cool. And I think it's cool that like... Does God collaborate with people on divine things? Why, <laughs> why, that that was dumb. <laughs> I think it's cool that like I I have often said on uh, social media of various types or another, and also in various podcast interviews that if Mormonism can get its shit together and stop discriminating against people, um, particularly LGBT people, LGBT people. There's God a Q in there. <laughs> particularly the queers, which is <laughs> which is where I can say that because I am one. Which is where <laughs> which is where their current focus and ire is directed. Um, but, but if they can like get over that shit, they're the only version of Christianity that seems to be poised to extend into the future. Like as we embrace artificial intelligence and like all the stuff that's, that's going to bring into our lives, Mormonism is uniquely set up to like work with that, um, because it is transhumanist. It's basically the premise in Mormonism for those who, you know, weren't raised in it like Tim and I were, is that, um, if you do everything right, then someday you can become a god. And gods, you know, God used to be like humans are now, like living a mortal existence on a planet called Kolob. Um, and it's like this, you know, it's this alien UFO transcending humanity, you know, kind of religion wrapped up in Christianity and uh, with magic thrown in. And it's great. It's fucking, it's fucking cool. So, you know, it, it can survive the AI apocalypse. Like, no other version of Christianity is going to be able to, but only if they stop trying to fuck with trans people. Yeah. I mean, they've they've literally got more money than God. Like, they just need to, like, chill out. Let it happen. And 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 uh, uh, to add to that point, anybody that is not Mormon, if you've ever met one, I guarantee you, you've had some sort of conversation about Star Wars with them. They're super duper nerds, super duper into, uh, uh, you know, that. And they, I, yeah, Mormons are fucking dorks uh, about that stuff. It's, it's wild. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a, a clear identifier for them. Like, yeah, like you're saying, transhumanist, like extending beyond it, very, very capable and willing. Like, I grew up in a very science fiction y household. Like, my dad, like, the, the, one time a week that he would sit down to watch TV was on Saturdays when uh, Star Trek, the original series was on and the next generation that was TV time on Saturdays. And it was so amazing because it was like approval, tacit approval from father to sit down and watch TV. And that really was like, important to me. Like I'm a super Star Trek nerd. I absolutely love it. Uh, um, and yeah, yeah. So interesting. So many other families I grew up with were like, yep, Star Wars, Star Trek, that's that's what we do. And it's like a perfect metaphor and a perfect extension for utopia, for 
you know, magic powers that are, you know, in the future, essentially, like what they're trying to achieve and, and attain and with, with their faith and then the, the transcendence of faith into yes. technology and the progression of humanity. Yeah. It, it's really interesting. Like when you look at Mormonism from like a sci-fi perspective, it all gels together very well. It's, it's not surprising that many well-known sci-fi authors are Mormons. So yeah. Yeah. It's wild it's a, stuff. It, it's in our blood. It's in our blood. I'm working on, I don't know if it's, is it sci-fi or is it, is, okay. So the novel I'm writing right now takes place in 2023 and it's about technology and science and, and artificial intelligence. So like, is it sci-fi since it has a contemporary setting or is it not sci-fi? I don't know. I guess I leave that to, to other people to decide, but um, it does have a Mormon character in it who is obsessed with Star Trek. So... <laughs> That's great. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be fun. It to totally works. Yeah. Uh, um, you. Oh, yeah. You were. I'm trying to remember. I ha like you. I had a thought, and in a sense, like drifted out of my mind. I can't remember. Somebody once said, like, you know, if it's important, it'll it'll like find its way back to your brain. And I was like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Like half the time that works for me. The other <laughs> half the time, I just give up. I'm like, all right, it's gone forever. Yeah, th this idea. Yeah, I I am uh, uh, more and more uh, using like notes on my phone and like writing things down, making sure like, okay, don't forget this. <laughs> Let's keep it right here so you have access to this thing later. And then We're it's all getting old. <laughs> I love it. It's great. You know, I mean, thank thank goodness there is you know a level of aid out there to to like help. Uh, uh, keep track of all these, these ideas and things like my, I've never used my phone more in a practical sense than I do now for like, okay, yeah, you're, you're my little notebook. You're my Rolodex. You're, you're this like, it is really like we yeah. have externalized parts of our brains into our phones. You, it, it's a kind of a necessary device for managing your life now. And, and I'm okay with that. Like I, I don't know, I think maybe 15, 20 years ago, I would have been freaked out by that and been like, whoa, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rely on technology too much. Now I'm like, fuck it. Transhumanize me. I'm fine with it. Just send me into an Android body. It's totally cool. This one sucks. Anyway, yeah. it's falling apart. <laughs> Having had several major injuries and major surgeries and things like that in my lifetime, like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm new knees, please. Please, sir, can I have an, a new body? <laughs> yeah, my like, knees suck. My butthole just like stopped working. <laughs> yep. That's, it, it's a real thing. Um, uh, That's yeah, a thing that happens when you get into your middle age. Your butthole goes on strike. So uh, um, part of part. Yeah. Part of that, like since we're, we're talking about it, part of that, like transhumanist sort of idea, like there's this company, I can't remember the guy's name, but I know his company with the, the wizard of barge. I absolutely love his stuff, but I bought this t-shirt from him that says shatter the illusion, illusion of self. You are a different person Ooh. to everyone you meet or everyone, you know, and it just like clicked. It was like, man, the ego needs to, to like feel this all the time because you are a different person. So this, like this, this, this meat suit, Yes, is doing its thing, but it's not necessarily me. And the me that I think of is strictly in, interpreted outside of this. Like, I have an idea, but it's not what somebody else's idea is. And it's like, yeah, it, it was just, there, there's something deep and profound about it. And I thank you, Wizard of Barge, uh, um, for for like ha this idea of of the self, this idea of of being that is, you know, infinitely interpretable. 
based upon every other person, every other entity out there. They have a different experience of you, whatever that is. Wow, that's freaky. I'm curious, like, now I want to know how other people interpret me, because it's probably drastically different from how I interpret myself. Well, I know you and I both have had conversations about this, about how we feel about ourselves versus, you know, like our, our perceived accomplishments and our actual accomplishments, uh, um, and, and how we interpret them versus what others do. Like, you know, I, I think we're both incredibly complimentary to each other because we genuinely feel that way. We're like, man, my, my friend here is an incredible artist, an incredible person that is, uh, you know, uh, it, interpreting the world in this very distinct way. And then when you're in the act of it and I'm in the act of it, we're both like, man, we fucking suck at the shit. <laughs> yeah. Just what am I doing? And then, and then externally to each other, we're like, this is awesome. <laughs> keep at it. Keep going. Like, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that reflection of self is like n- nowhere near what somebody else thinks. Like, it's so fascinating to think about, like, like at work, like at my job, at my day job, like, I know that there's a, a version of me there that is very directly related to like the person that I am when I'm engaging with you, but it's varied. And the experience with my, my coworkers and my boss, like each person is interpreting something different there. And it's totally fascinating to think about. It. It's like, is Tim Tim or is he something else? Like, so fascinating. I absolutely love that. Like, yeah, it, it was like a necessary thing. As soon as I saw that on the website, I was like, okay, click add to cart. <laughs> I ha- yes, I'm going to wear this t-shirt all the time. Thank you. <laughs> Blow other people's minds with with my shirt. Yeah. Oh, one time Paul and I got into a big discussion about how like before, right before the internet really started to take off and people started developing meme culture, you know? Yeah. Um, we were like, what? what was the like early, early internet or pre-internet equivalent of meme culture. And we figured out that it was slogan t-shirts. It's like, you could wear a t-shirt. Yeah. You could wear a t-shirt that had some pithy idea on it or some like visual pun or whatever. And it would make other people stop and think and go, uh, you know, or that was the idea behind it. Probably it made most people roll their eyes and think you were a dipshit, but same thing with like bumper stickers. Yeah. Yeah. Bumper stickers and t-shirts. That was what we had in 1992. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. But no, yeah, that's exactly it. Like the, the, uh, pre, the pre meme meme. So we'll, we'll pre meme before we meme, but yeah, yeah. Like so many, so many ridiculous things like branding, marketing, all that stuff. Like in conjunction with the magazine, I have recently created this like fake marketing company that clearly says we're pieces of shit. We're going to make your product worse. We're going to half-ass it. It's called Milk Toast Marketing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I haven't done a ton with it yet, but I, I created a bunch of like Instagram uh, posts that have like variations on it. Like, oh, uh, uh, here's here's a couple of ideas for like what you can do when you're working from home. And it's like, am I crazy? Am I being gaslit? No, HR is the enemy. <laughs> Like, I love you. I love you. Get your drunk wings. and beat off between, uh, you know, uh, Zoom meetings. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I know that that's what every one of these like uh, corporate CEOs that are like, we have to go back to the office. We have to. All they're doing is masturbating at home. It's like, no, everybody's more productive. Yes, we are jerking off, but we're also getting more work done. We can multitask. Like, we can jerk off and get more work done at the same time. And it probably helps, it keeps you lower stress. You know, certainly. Yeah. Like it went, I, I do a couple of work from home days and I'm multitasking all the time. I feel so much more accomplished. 
Like I'm doing the laundry, I'm taking care of dishes, uh, you know, any sort of household stuff that I need to do on my lunch breaks. I'm running to the grocery store, Yeah. you know, and then I'm, I'm, yeah, everything feels like way better that way. Like, yeah, no, it's a, it's a significantly better way to live your life. I think oh, yeah. personally, and you know, I don't know what the, like, AI is going to take over so many of these smaller level tasks anyway, you know, everything that can be automated will be automated probably within a couple of years. Like everyone always says, no, 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 I'm projecting too far and too quickly for that stuff. Like, fuck you guys, dude, literally in the course of like six weeks, AI has gone from the point where it's like, okay, to the point where it's passing entrance exams yeah. at, at universities, you know, and now they just came out with Palmy, which is apparently passing the Turing test just fine and is like, like it appears to be AGI, like artificial general intelligence, the way you can interact with it and ask it questions and receive really specific and detailed answers. It's like, yeah, this is general intelligence. Okay. So now we have a robot hive mind that can do a bunch of shit for us. What are we're going to do our laundry and jerk off in between work, whatever work is left for us to do. Like corporations got to stop fighting this. Like it's, this is the future now. So fucking deal with it. We're living in Jetson's world. (laughs) It's wild. Uh, Out of all the, uh, versions of AI that you're familiar with in pop culture? Is there one that you like identify with the most? Is there like a version of that, that you're familiar with that seems like the most like appealing to you outside of anything real, just what pop culture that you're, 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 you know, you've consumed and you're, you know, I'm actually, I'm not really super familiar with, with representations of AI in pop culture, except for older stuff, like in Star Trek, the various forms of AI they had on board the ship and um, data, of course. And like Hal from 2001, it's like, I, I don't really, I, I love to read sci-fi, but I don't get like super geeky about yeah. it. So I don't like follow fandoms or anything. Did um, you ever I see, I couldn't tell you, but I, oh, did you ever see the movie Her? No, I haven't seen that yet. And everyone keeps telling me I need to see it. I totally need to see it. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna, yeah, I won't, I won't spoil anything for I, you. I know what it's about. I've read kind of like a synopsis of it. So I know it's about like a person who, who like falls in love with a female coded AI. Uh, because I'm, st- I'm still, uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, still learning to deconstruct like the 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 uh, culture of patriarchy that I of course was raised in. It's hard for me sometimes to like cry and things like that. So one of the few movies in the theater where I was like sobbing. I, I just Aww. it's so it was so good and I identified with it so much. Just like they did such a good job of like uh, portraying like this this like connection and and it happens to be with an artificial intelligence, but like. You know, it's a fantastic vehicle and good science fiction does this really well. It takes contemporary issues that people face, puts them into a, a different space, either the future or, or or sort of an alternative reality or whatever like that, so that there's objective separation so that we can objectively view and analyze a thing without the subjective emotions that we, we do experience. But it's an incredible relationship story. And it's about how relationships begin and how relationships end. And the 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 turn in it is so so good and and it's not just the 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 protagonist played by Joaquin Phoenix it's like humanity like everyone is everyone has this relationship with this with technology and then it changes and it's it's incredible that's my absolute favorite uh, positive version of it my favorite negative is Skynet from from the Terminator franchise oh yeah humanity yeah, yeah, had yeah. its chance it's time to eat shit. <laughs> 
yeah. Too, too bad. You know, we, we fucked around and we found out we created things that are like, well, humans are terrible. Let's wipe them out. Yeah. Yeah. I've been reading. So, uh, I don't, th- I don't think that that's going, going to be the case. Uh, you know, I seriously don't, but I, yeah, that's my favorite, like negative portrayal of artificial intelligence. The number of people though, speaking of Reddit, the number of people on like the singularity sub on Reddit who are just completely convinced that it's just going to be 100% absolute apocalypse all humans are doomed is both really funny and really annoying to me like they're just so determined that this is going to be doomsday and it's like okay but there's no reason to think that like it's probably going to be more like when we got the internet and every everybody just changed the way they did stuff like <laughs> did, did, did nobody learn from y2k I know it's it's 20 20 plus years ago but seriously nothing nothing fucking happened we had like you talked about uh, or yeah, like most people well some people are aware there were a lot of dedicated like programmers and people out there that yeah. like made the effort to switch like programming and, and like cause nothing to happen, which is really good. Just remember a few things from the past. That's all we got to do. Just remember a few things and everything's going to be fine. Just don't repeat those mistakes. Did yeah. you read that fucking bullshit article that Henry Kissinger wrote, though? First of all, I was surprised that Henry Kissinger is still alive, <laughs> but but he is. <laughs> is, is some, somebody like like hooked him up to a car battery just to keep him <laughs> animate or something? Jesus Christ! P- please, please, you've you've done your bid for king and country all negatively. You can you can rest now, sir. Yeah, thanks for the Vietnam War. We'll be over here doing <laughs> cleaning up your fucking mess from decades ago. But like, um, yeah, yeah, he wrote this whole screed about how we we need to pay close attention to AI, which is true. We do. We need. There are ethical questions that we need to we need to pay attention to with this. But then he also was like basically the way we're going to preserve our humanity in the face of, you know, potentially having created a sentient conscious mind that's not human, how we're going to preserve our humanity is to just deny that it could ever be conscious and to just decide as a society that machines are always going to be machines and inanimate and not sentient and not conscious. And basically there are electronic slaves. And as long as we never look closely enough to see that they might be conscious, then we're safe. And I was like, what the fuck? Have you learned nothing from human history? Like, we've said similar shit about, you know, animal rights and about why it's okay to enslave people. Like, you can't, you can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to refuse to acknowledge the, the you know, animate nature of this other thing. And that'll allow me to continue to use it as a tool. Like, dude, fuck you, Henry Kissinger. That's exactly what I expected from your ass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This this is like uh, the hallmark, the the unending hallmark uh, of power. It knows when it's threatened, yep. even though it's not being threatened, and it'll do anything to maintain power. So, you know, all the, the ghosts and boogeymen that, you know, uh, uh, authority uh, puts out there like, oh, no, the system might change. And like... Yes, and so what? Like the system's always gonna change. Yeah, <laughs> it's always gonna change. I'm sorry that you're so so afraid of not being able to not be in a position of power yeah. over everyone and everything. Too 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 bad. Like, yes, you're you're gonna have to face that and say like, okay, yeah, life emerges. Like something different is being created. Like, stop. Just chill out. You know, and and if it if it wipes it us wipes us out, so what? <laughs> you don't have any control over that, anyways. Right, and it's just you know, chill out, dude. Sm- smoke a blunt. Exactly, smoke a blunt because that'll help you see the the bigger picture more effectively. Which is that, yeah, if a machine can be conscious, then maybe animals are conscious, maybe plants are conscious, maybe the planet is conscious, maybe the fucking universe is conscious. 
Like, maybe it's all conscious, Henry Kissinger. So what are you going to do about it? Pretend like nothing exists? Come on. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think uh, like a lot of people that like go through sort of faith transitions, like there was my hard swing to a very atheistic worldview, no divine, no nothing, no spiritual. We're just, you know, uh, atoms, you know, swirling around, making chemical bonds. That's it, you know, and then as I've let go of some of that hate and anger that like existed as I was like feeling that rejection in my life, like I've definitely reopened myself up to like, Hey, and you know, I don't know. I really don't know. And that's okay. And there probably is a lot of this stuff that is interconnected. There is a ton of this stuff that is, we don't know that others like identify as like living and alive and spiritual and, and conscious and, and aware and it's okay for that stuff. Like, let let's share some of the existential dread of of self awareness. <laughs> let's let's like, you know what? Yeah, knowing that I am me is 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 terrifying, and and you know, but it's also very comforting. And if other beings and other entities and living matter out there has that same experience, that makes it you know less scary. Like we're all we're all flailing in in the void, and it's okay. It's total. It's totally okay. <laughs> Said life's just a bowl of cherries, but sometimes it seems like anything. I'll think again. Sometimes reputations outlive their applications. Sometimes fires don't go out when you're done playing with them. I feel so funny deep inside. I wanna kiss myself goodbye. Sugar high. I can go out, not even leave the house. TV set and a bottle of wine. Just fine. Crashing out on that old pull-out couch. Watching Saturday Night Live. I guess that's why. Feel so funny deep inside. I want to kiss myself goodbye. Sugar. Name is a fucking Warren. Sugar high. Sugar high. 
One of the great joys of my career as a writer is the fact that I have the power to drive book clubs absolutely crazy by refusing to provide any sort of discussion guide for my books. <laughs> the only exception is The Prophet's Wife, which my publisher, like, forced me to put discussion questions into. Ugh. I did because they didn't really give me an option, but I made them the most annoyingly dense esoteric questions of all time. That was my revenge on William Morrow. But my Olivia Hawker stuff, no book club guides for any of my books, period, because I believe very strongly that what an author puts into a book thematically doesn't really matter to anyone but the author. Artists can't control or dictate the meaning of their work, and we shouldn't try. Not only is it futile, but I really think it's anathema to art itself. I don't feel that I need to explain my art to you, Warren. See, a work of art is only halfway finished when its creator finishes making it. It doesn't become complete until it connects with a receptor, until it finds its audience, and then it's filtered through the experience and the understanding, the perspective of the person who receives it. It takes on new meaning when it enters the minds of the people who interact with it. And sometimes it finds an entirely different meaning from the intent and the purpose its creator imbued it with. And I believe that's what art is supposed to do. I don't think we as creators have any business messing with that. Let your artwork do its job. Don't interfere. What is self? That's a question I think about a lot. I think I have it as much figured out as it's possible to figure out the unknowable. I won't bore you with my philosophies on the illusion of reality and the illusion of self like this episode is already way too long. But I think Tim and his t-shirt are right. I think we are different realities to everyone we encounter. In exactly the same way a work of art means something different to everyone who interacts with it. I think it's the interactions between ourselves and other individuals, ourselves and our communities, between ourselves and nature ourselves and art, between one aspect of ourselves and another aspect of ourselves. It's these interactions that make us who we are to us and who we are to other people. And those may be different identities, possibly very different, but they aren't any less real just because we don't recognize them or because we have little to no control over them. And that's something I think a lot about too. I really do believe that we have the power to change the world more than we think we have. This is a core principle of my beliefs that what you do at the micro level directly and powerfully impacts the macro level. As above, so below. We are the jewels in Indra's net, and each facet of ourselves reflects the countless other facets of reality with which we have interacted. So it really is possible to actively make the world a better place by being mindful of the ways we interact with one another and with our environment. And I know that sounds Pollyanna-ish and naive to some people, but honestly, all the people out there who think it can't be as simple as that just sound really bitter and frankly kind of stupid to me. Like, why wouldn't it make the world a better place to show more kindness and mercy and love to everyone and everything you encounter? Do we really think it's only the bad things, the negative interactions, that have the power to shift our reality? Any rock you drop into a pond will send out ripples, and those ripples eventually reach everywhere. So yes, if you want to make the world a better place, do it by making yourself a better self. Because you are the world, and the world is you. And because every place where you touch the world gives rise to a new and distinct self. 
If you're serious about making a better you, then you really have to think hard and act with intention when you interact with everyone and everything. That year when I started working at Half Price Books, while I was going through my divorce, was a really hard time for me. It was so hard to keep my head above water in every conceivable way, and I knew I needed to prioritize joy and gratitude and connection in some way in order to get through it. I just didn't know how to do that. And I was broke as hell. Like, I was actually living out of my car for a while during that year, and I was thanking my lucky stars that I had a car to live out of. So I couldn't afford a therapist. This was before Obamacare, so no chance. But I did find something that worked. It helped me more than anything had ever helped me before with my mental health. Whenever I started to feel really down, which was several times a week, I went to Green Lake, which is this big public park in Seattle. There's a three mile paved walking track that encircles the lake and I would just walk all the way around the lake, sometimes twice, just picking up litter whenever I found it. And I had one rule for myself. Whenever I was at Green Lake, if I made eye contact with any other person, I had to smile at them. And you know, every single person smiled back at me. Some even said hi. Once in a while they stopped to talk to me and that was really fun. It made me feel so good and connected and visible at a time when those things were really, really hard to feel. That's all for this week, friends. I hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to check out Mid-Level Management Literary Magazine, which you can find at midlvlmag.com, and follow Mid-Level Mag on your favorite social media. Hit follow on your favorite podcatcher if you want to get my new episodes every Wednesday, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take a minute to rate and review, since that reflects the best aspects of the algorithm back at itself, thus allowing me to find more curious weirdos like you. Featured music was Sugar High, written by Coyote Shivers and covered by Douglas J featuring Stephen Q. Additional music included Romeo and Juliet, written by Mark Knopfler and covered by Mark Langan, and Plowed, written by Sponge and covered by Vince LaPon. Sound collage elements came from the following YouTube channels. Vince LaPon, Shutter Eye Designs, Douglas J, VM, JD, and DPT. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. Yeah.